work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription welcome to the past and the curious i'm your host mick sullivan let me put my banjo down hey what are you doing in here what are you doing with my banjo get out of here Ah, you caught me, Sullivan. I'll get you yet. Well, I guess this was an appropriate time for this to happen because this episode is about fakes, frauds, and counterfeits. Our dear friend, Rhea Pector, from Little Stories for Tiny People, a wonderful Kids Listen podcast. She's the creator of that show. She's going to tell you about a man named William Henry Ireland who pretended to be someone way more famous than William Henry Ireland. After that... It's going to be me again. At least, hope it's the real me and not fake Mick hanging around. Anyway, I'll be telling you the story of some uh, body snatchers. Ooh, happy Halloween. Oh, we also have a brand new CD, so stick around at the end and I'm going to tell you about that. William Henry Ireland's father, Samuel, was pretty cold. In Samuel's mind, and the minds of pretty much everyone else, his son William would not amount to much. He was a poor student, didn't appear to be particularly clever, and never had much interest in working hard. So his dad didn't expect much of him, and he certainly never thought he was capable of pulling off one of the most daring hoaxes in the history of literature. Now, Despite this icy opinion of his son, Samuel melted into a puddle of joy when he could add another rare book to his collection. Those were his pride and joy. And in his collection of books and relics, he had some remarkable stuff. But it was missing something. Oh, how he pined for something from Shakespeare's own hand. Even just a signature from his favorite writer would put him over the moon. In fact, this was a tall order, nearly as high as the moon. There is almost nothing surviving from Shakespeare's own hand. The bard, as he was known, has since become known as the greatest playwright of all time. But after his death in 1616, most of his works that survived were actually reproductions of his writing. The originals were not preserved. If not for a group of supporters who published many of his works after he died, we might never have even heard of him, and his art could have been lost to the ages. 
While there are nearly no plays or poems written in his own hand, most historians will tell you that there are actually six, only six, existing signatures, and all are from various legal documents that Shakespeare signed, like the purchase of a home, a document from a court case, and his last will and testament. William Henry Ireland, with the book-loving father, would make you believe that there were seven. It was 1794, and he was a young man who worked in a London law office. He was mostly alone all of the time, surrounded by lots of dusty records, rolls, and books. He had a lot of time on his hands. When one day he purchased a book that appeared to have been given at one time to Queen Elizabeth, he thought it might be worth a fortune. It was not, mostly because there was no definite proof of it ever being in royal hands. So he trimmed an old piece of paper from one of the hundred-year-old records in his law office, mixed up some ink, watering it down to make it look old, and tried his hand at forging an old letter from the author to the queen. It was pretty good, but not perfect. Soon, though, he learned to mix his ink with a few chemicals that made it undetectable once dry from ink that was a hundred-something years old. He discovered he had a natural talent, and he gave the new old letter tucked in the book to his excited father. It was great, but it was no Shakespeare autograph. So taking his new skills in forging and mixing not old but old-looking ink, he resolved to give his father what he wanted most. He found in a published volume a copy of Shakespeare's signature. Like a magician with a writing quill, William Ireland realized he had a gift for mimicking the specific shapes and angles of a person's handwriting. This is called forgery. It is wrong. Deep down, he knew that, and he knew it would be tough to get away with. So rather than sign William Shakespeare's name on a poem or something of importance, he used more of that old paper laying around the office and faked an IOU note between the playwright and the owner of the Globe Theater. It seemed doubtful that anyone would question such a document. His dad loved it. What a gift, huh? Well, Henry was so excited to make his father happy that he kind of sort of forged a few more documents. While at first his father wanted to keep things quiet, he knew this was a big deal, and he wished to share the Shakespearean curiosities with some friends who had a bit of expertise in the area. Upon hearing this terrifying news, William's panicked gulp was probably audible. Gulp? Certainly, they would recognize the fakes, and he would embarrass his father and himself. It was a shame that would probably last a long time. But after some quick thinking and satisfactorily answering some questions from the gentleman, they left satisfied. He had fooled them, too. 
Now, you'd think that a scare like this would have made him count his lucky stars and quit all the forgery nonsense before his lie was revealed. But no, he found new documents, even a letter to Queen Elizabeth from Shakespeare. But then, guess what he brought to his father next? An entire poem. Not just any poem, but an undiscovered love poem from William Shakespeare to his fiancée, Anne Hathaway. Now, understand, it was undiscovered because William Ireland wrote it in 1795, 179 years after Shakespeare had died. Obviously, a backstory had to be crafted. How could a young man be lucky enough to just stumble into all of these incredible artifacts from Shakespeare's hand? According to William, he had befriended a rich gentleman who wished to remain anonymous. This man, a collector known as Mr. H, had a trunk full of papers which he allowed the young man to sift through, knowing the Shakespearean treasures it just so happened to contain needed to be made public. This so-called Mr. H just did not want any of the notoriety that came with it. So everything conveniently funneled through William Ireland. This excuse worked well for William, because if his made-up Mr. H wished to remain anonymous, he'd never have to introduce him to anyone. William Ireland was getting so good at mimicking Shakespeare's handwriting, he could practically do it in his sleep. Among the next things he brought to his father was a volume of papers that he had copied and passed off as an original, handwritten copy of the play King Lear. Oh, and he gave him part of Hamlet, too. To be Shakespeare or not to be Shakespeare? That was the question. And William Henry Ireland decided to be Shakespeare. You see, while copying all of these writings from the master, he learned a thing or two. And he decided he had learned enough. Enough to write an entire new play and pass it off as Shakespeare. It was called Vortigern and Rowena and was about, like many of Shakespeare's historical plays, real people from the past. It only took him two months, and within the year, he had a contract for someone to perform it. A long-lost Shakespeare play. Imagine people's excitement. But again, not really Shakespeare. In the end, many people say it wasn't a completely terrible play. It wasn't as good as Shakespeare, but there were many worse plays that were published and performed, too. William Henry Ireland, a boy who was supposed to amount to nothing, was now a published author with a contract to perform a play he had written. Pretty amazing. Except everyone believed it was Shakespeare. Buoyed by the turn of events and spurred on by manic energy, William wrote a second play while waiting for the first to be staged. This one would never be performed, which is sad in a way. 
It appears he learned a lot from creating the first one, and his new play was more sophisticated, humorous, tragic, and much closer to the work of Shakespeare, who, of course, he said wrote it. But by now, many people were beginning to cry foul. Vortigern and Rowena was only staged once. Most people realized that this was not the work of Shakespeare and that they'd been had. Others still believed this young man had found a treasure trove of Shakespeare's long-lost works. Eventually, he had to come clean. It seems his dad had a hard time with the admission. Maybe Samuel just desperately wanted his Shakespeare collection to be real. Maybe he didn't believe his son was capable of such writing. Whether one agrees that his writing was good or not, one cannot argue that how much he wrote in such a short time is not impressive. And if nothing else, his skill at forgery was remarkable. Nevertheless, when his father died four years after the ordeal, he did not believe his son's admission of guilt. If it was a lie, it couldn't have been his son's lie. But William actually wrote a book outlining the story admitting not just guilt, but how he perpetrated the crime. He published it as a way to continue earning money by writing, now that his magical line on Shakespeare's lost treasures was gone. He later published more writings under his own name. None of it was really remarkable, and critics say his writing while trying to make people believe he was the bard was far better. It makes one wonder... What if either of his two plays were simply published under his own name, rather than under the dim light of a lie? Might he have made a name for himself on his own abilities? Some say he could have. In either case, he had this unusual distinction. For about a year and a half, he wasn't William Ireland. He was William Shakespeare. Hey, everyone. The Real Deal Mick Sullivan here, and it's time for a quiz. Hey, I thought I told you to get lost. Go on, get! Yahoo! Sorry, folks. Well, it's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Man, can you believe the nerve of that guy? It's quiz time. (sighs) Anyway, here's a quiz about fakes. Perhaps the most expensive bottle of wine was purchased in 1985 for the price of $156,000. It supposedly belonged to someone famous way back in 1787. Spoiler alert, it was a fake. But who was originally believed to have owned it? Thomas Jefferson. It was Thomas Jeff, or it wasn't Thomas Jefferson. You know what I mean. One clue that helped them figure it out was that the engraving on the bottle, it was done with an electric drill. According to our sources, there were no electric drills in 1787. Question number two. In the United States, they make coins in four cities. All of the coins come from these four cities. Can you tell me two of them? Coins from Denver, Colorado will be marked with a D. And coins from San Francisco will be marked with an S. 
some coins are produced in West Point, New York, but those are mostly for the collector's market. The largest mint is in Philadelphia. Some of those coins from Philly will be marked with a P. However, you will find many coins that do not have a mint mark to tell you where they were made. Any coins such as this are also made in Philadelphia. Question number three. Do you know which famous Italian artist first gained notoriety in the art world after forging an antique sculpture of a Cupid and making it appear to be more valuable than it really was? Mm -hmm. In 1496, at the age of 20, Michelangelo created a marble sculpture which he buried and treated with chemicals to make it look older. Not cool, Mikey, not cool. Eventually, a pretty powerful man wound up buying it, and when he discovered that it was fake, he recognized that even if the artist didn't have the strongest commitment to the truth, he had enormous talent. This led to many opportunities and celebrity for the young artist who went on to create such famous works as David and the Sistine Chapel. At some point on April 14, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln signed his name on a piece of legislation that would create the Secret Service. But it's not like the Secret Service magically popped into being when Abraham Lincoln put his John Hancock on that page. No, it would take months for the Secret Service to actually get organized and officially begin operations. Too bad, because later that very same day, Lincoln and his wife went to see a play called Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater. Does this sound familiar? Well, if not, let's just say April 14th, 1865 didn't end well. Because that day, one of America's most famous actors became its most famous assassin. John Wilkes Booth killed Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, the president definitely could have used some Secret Service protection. But to be honest, that wouldn't have helped in 1865. Protecting the president wasn't what the Secret Service was originally intended to do. Before they became silent and solemn agents in dark suits and sunglasses with radio earpieces, their job was actually to catch counterfeiters. You see, in the years of the Civil War, paper money was more common than ever, and paper money is way easier to copy than coins or gold. The process to counterfeit a dollar is not a simple one. People with a steady hand and an artistic eye have some of the right skills for the job, with as much accuracy as possible, the counterfeiter would create a set of plates, sort of like metal stamps, one for the front of the bill and one for the back. The first step in the process was engraving the design into a perfectly flat piece of metal. It was painstaking, staring at the engraving with a magnifying glass for hours just to get it right, making the tiniest, nearly imperceptible marks, perfectly matching those of a real bill. Once you were certain the pictures, the words, and the numbers were as perfect as can be, well, then you had to get the paper and the ink right if you were going to fool anybody into believing that it was real money. Knowing people would be trying to cheat and print their own money, the government made the bills complicated, ornate, and highly detailed. But some counterfeiters were just so good that they could copy darn near anything. 
and Benjamin F. Boyd was such a man. While living in Cincinnati, he had gotten really, really good at counterfeiting. Perhaps he was the best in the biz. The Mozart of making money. The Van Gogh of faux greenbacks. The Da Vinci of deceptive dollars. Why, his $5 plates were so good, the government couldn't tell his fake bills from their real ones, so they just decided it was easier to just change and reprint a new $5 bill and get all of the old ones back rather than try to sort his out. Though he got caught once, that didn't stop him. It led him to a life on the run. He'd bounce around from town to town, spreading his fake money until it was time to leave. He'd head on to a new place with more fake money and the Secret Service on his tail. When he wound up in Illinois, he found himself in a good situation. He was near Chicago, which was a big city where organized crime was taking shape. And one of the crime bosses, Big Jim Keneally, built a multi-state business around Ben Boyd's funny money. It's hard to know how many bills the criminal created and passed off as real money, but estimates indicate that Boyd created as many as $6,050 bills. If you do the math, that adds up to $300,000. And in the 1870s, that was the equivalent of millions of dollars today. And that's just the $50 bills. He made all sorts of money. And with the organization, power, and distribution of Keneally's gang, these guys were getting rich. Illegally rich, but rich. And Ben's counterfeit money was the reason why. So, you can understand why when the Secret Service finally caught him, Big Jim and his gang were upset. In an instant, their money dried up. When Big Jim heard that Ben had been sentenced to 10 years in jail, he began to hatch a scheme to get him out. There was no way he could go 10 years without those sweet, sweet fake bills. But Big Jim decided that rather than busting him out with force or baking him a cake with a saw hidden inside, he'd steal something that the government wanted and hold it for ransom. And with this, they'd negotiate Ben's release and get him back to printing fake money once again. But what to steal? Today, Abraham Lincoln's body is held in a giant, impenetrable tomb in Springfield, Illinois. But in 1876, it was surprisingly accessible. November 7th was election day, and everyone would be distracted by the crazy presidential race that would put Rutherford B. Hayes in office, eventually. It was a perfect night for a group of Jim's men to tiptoe into the building where Lincoln's coffin lay, and they would swipe his body. They'd have a horse and a wagon waiting outside, which would carry old honestly dead Abe to the Indiana shores of Lake Michigan. There, they'd bury the cedar coffin full of presidential bones in one of the giant sand dunes in the area. And when the government finally agreed to free their counterfeiting friend, they'd give the perished and pilfered president back to the American public once more. It seemed like a no-brainer to them, but as it turns out, some of the men on the job might have actually had no brains. As a result of a snitching double agent, and probably the criminals not being able to keep a secret anyway, the police, the Secret Service, Abraham Lincoln's son Robert, and heck, pretty much anyone within a 10-mile radius knew about the plot. 
So when the would-be body snatchers cut the deadbolt lock off the gate and approached the sarcophagus around Lincoln's coffin, they had no idea that in the darkness that surround them was a police force ready to pounce. Creeping in the shadows, the men successfully removed the decorative marble cover of the sarcophagus and eventually placed their hands on the cedar coffin that held Abe's remains. After moving it a few inches while trying to remain as quiet as possible, the silence was broken, but not by the body snatchers. One of the agents there to catch them accidentally fired his gun, and the men fled in panic, being chased by a comically large posse of cops who couldn't tell who was who in the dark by the skin of their teeth the criminals escaped and quietly made their way back to Chicago. But everyone knew who they were, so before too long, well, they were in jail. But body snatching, curiously, was not really illegal then, and they weren't caught in the act of counterfeiting, so they only spent a year in the slammer. Big Jim, the guy who sent the brainless guys to do his work in the first place, well, he eventually landed in jail too, but for longer because he actually got arrested for counterfeiting. As far as Lincoln's body is concerned, to prevent such an occurrence from happening again, it was actually moved for many years to the basement of that building. To further camouflage it, though, they just stacked a bunch of old wood on top. Not very dignified, and no one really knew. So for years, those who thought they were paying their respects to the Great Emancipator, they were just standing right before a great, empty container. But he was below their feet, looking like a scrap heap. Abe is back now, don't worry. The vault is covered up with a brick wall just in case there is any more scheme hatching and body snatching. If you're in the neighborhood of Springfield, Illinois though, you should make sure to stop in and tell Abe hello. Shouting the battle cry of freedom We will rally from the hillside Gather from the plain Shouting the battle cry of freedom The Union forever Hey, great news, everybody. 
we have a CD available now, or a download, because most people don't buy CDs anymore. If you would like to get it and you would like to help support the show, it's such a great way to do it. It's all of our favorite songs from the first, I don't know, year and a half of The Past and the Curious uh, with some really, really great friends. So you can get it at iTunes, CD Baby, Amazon Music, or if you want a physical copy of the CD, you can also order that from cdbaby.com. We'll put a link on our website, The Past and the Curious. Thank you. It is listed under me, Mick Sullivan, and the title is The Past and the Curious, Volume 1. So we have to thank our good friend, Jonathan Messenger, the creator of Pants on Fire, a great game show podcast. Uh, Jonathan Messenger's other name is Fake Mick, so that was Fake Mick. Uh, I also have to thank our friend Rhea Pector, who did a great reading. And you should check out her show, Little Stories for Tiny People. It's a really, really great show. Part of the Halloween sweeps that Kids Listen is doing. So make sure you listen to that. You can find out more about that at kidslisten.org. You should also check out But Why. They're going to be doing a Halloween sweeps episode too that we're really excited to hear. Because otherwise, that's a really cool kid-led podcast where they answer questions. Some of them are pretty thorny questions. Some of them are really funny questions. And some of them, like maybe at Halloween, will be super, super interesting. Uh, And before I go, I have one new Patreon sponsor to thank. Thank you, Gina. Gina, Thomas, and Alexander. If you'd like to join the crew that's helping make this possible by keeping the lights on, join us on Patreon.com, or you can buy that new CD. Gotta tell you, it's really, 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 really fun. Thanks a lot. This was a fun episode. Hope to talk to you soon, everybody. I'm Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious. (laughs) 